Welcome back to What Happens Next, the podcast that examines some of the biggest challenges facing our world and asks the experts what will happen if we don't change and what can we do to create a better future. I'm Dr. Susan Carland. Keep listening to find out what happens next. Climate anxiety is really about feeling powerless Mm. and feeling overwhelmed by the size of the problem. We're really entering a kind of anxiety that our younger generation have that we really haven't seen before. Anxiety particularly is focused on um, an unknown future Mm -hmm. and what might happen. And if you feel like you're going to lose your future, then anxiety will happen. That's very different from fear and it's very different from grief. Cold War, American children were introduced to Bert, a cartoon turtle from a US government-funded training film who knew just what to do in a nuclear attack, duck and cover. He did what we all must learn to do. You and you and you and you duck and cover. Be sure and remember what Bert the turtle just did, friends, because every one of us must remember to do the same thing. These days, Bert's strategy seems laughable. Ducking beneath your school desk won't be much help at ground zero in an atomic explosion, after all. But at least Bert had a plan. And in a time where everyone was feeling helpless in the face of planetary catastrophe, that was reassuring in itself. If the phrase, feeling helpless in the face of planetary catastrophe, sent a little shiver of recognition down your spine... It may be because more than 70 years later, we're in a similar situation. This time, the threat is climate change. This week, we're delving into the phenomenon of climate anxiety, a growing mental health burden that's quickly becoming a full-on crisis. Keep listening to find out what happens next. I'm Amanda McKenzie. I'm the CEO of the Climate Council. We work to educate Australians on climate action and advocate to the federal government. Amanda, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. How would you define climate anxiety? I think climate anxiety is really the reasonable concern that the world is changing rapidly in ways that we can't control and people are increasingly experiencing it in their own lives, bushfires, floods, etc. and worrying not only about the impacts on them and their family but also the more macro challenges around food security, refugees, etc. Mm. You make the point that it's the reasonable anxiety and I wonder about that term climate anxiety because when we say someone's anxious about something mm. often we peg it to things that people it's an anxiety they shouldn't really be scared of or worried about the airplanes, spiders, mm. you know those kind of things. Climate anxiety makes a lot of sense. So how do you deal with an anxiety that actually is entirely reasonable? I think it really, it's important to acknowledge that, first of all, to say that it is reasonable to be scared of something that's very scary. And so I think that validation is the first point in being able to accept, actually, this is a scary thing and it's brave to look at it in the face. As the United Nations focal point for Monash University, ecologist Susie Ho regularly attends climate change conferences, including the annual conference of the parties, or COP. It's given her a global perspective on climate anxiety. 
we do know from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, so the IPCC, that climate change is affecting the health of people globally, and that includes mental health. So mental health impacts can happen from exposure to a whole range of things like extreme weather events, displacement, famine, malnutrition, degradation of social systems, climate-related economic loss and familial loss, and the distress that comes with worrying about climate change. We have very high confidence in this. So the IPCC has shown that climate change is a rising threat to mental health and well-being, spanning um, emotional distress to anxiety, depression, and even grief. And that's because environmental and human health are closely intertwined. So healthy humans thrive in a healthy environment. But we're really pushing Earth's life support systems to the limit. And that has led to the emergence and rapid spread of eco-anxiety or climate anxiety. And that's defined by the American Psychological Association as a chronic fear of environmental doom. So a lot of young people are feeling this. Um... 60% of American teenagers, almost 80% of British teenagers feel anxious or fearful. And that's something that's likely been exacerbated by COVID because um, we didn't have the same level of social support or engagement with nature during lockdown. Mm. And they're two things that are really important to a positive outlook. A few years ago, Dr Rhonda Garrard from Monash University's Centre for Health Research and Implementation co-led a study to determine climate change's impact on Australians' mental health. Rhonda, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. How bad is climate anxiety at the moment? So we found, we did our study in 2020, and so it's going back a couple of years now, but uh, we found that it was very high, particularly concerningly among young people. Uh, And not only just uh, concern about, um, you know, post events. And when we did our study, it was just after the major bushfires that wiped out about 6% of New South Wales. Uh, And so that we had a very high uh, number of people that had directly experienced climate um, events. And they were, of course, you know, suffering from the um, post-traumatic impacts of that. But we now have this phenomenon called free uh, anxiety, where young people are worried uh, into the future, uh, really about not having a future, not being able to envisage a future or a future that is in a way uh, the future that their parents or previous generations had. And so we're really entering a kind of anxiety that our younger generation have that we really haven't seen before. Um, some people argue that what we're going through now is something like what people went through during wars or the nuclear threats um, in the mid-century, the last century. Uh, But I would argue strongly that what we're actually experiencing and seeing in the mental health of our young people is something we've actually never seen before because the scale of climate is so great and we know that there's no real solutions Uh, effective solutions on the table right now. So, um, you know, the scale of anxiety is big. Uh, It's particularly pronounced in young people uh, and and it's only escalating. Hi, my name is Alan Reid and I work in the Faculty of Education at Monash University and I research environmental sustainability and climate change education. Alan, welcome. Tell me, how does 
climate anxiety manifest itself in particularly in school-aged children? What does it look like? Is it different to say the anxiety that maybe children living through World War II might have felt? Is it or is it the same kind of thing? That's a, a good point. The one of the main things you find in the studies on this is if you look at the kinds of patterns of response to, say, the threats of nuclear war in the Cold War period, particularly in the 80s, there are very similar patterns of anxiety around the future. Anxiety particularly is focused on um, an unknown future Mm -hmm. and what might happen. And if you feel like you're going to lose your future, then anxiety will happen. That's very different from fear and it's very different from grief. Um, And often these things get bundled together in the school's related literature on what's happening with young people, what's happening with youth. Um, And the climate strikes are often focused around, well, what kind of future am I going to inherit from the current generation? So when we start seeing that, then we see that there is a similar level of response. And so that's very different from, say, the post-war period and even the 60s and 70s, because the scale and the complexity of what's going on, it's not like it's an isolated part of the world which is being affected. This affects everybody. An intergenerational conflict is brewing. Here's Rhonda. Young people are very clued into climate science. They're very clued into what's happening. We saw in those extraordinary, um, uh, you know, marches pre-COVID, um, the school climate strikes that, um, you know, there's a very, very high level of uh, concern and willingness to take action. Um, and we also found in our study tremendous frustration uh, among young people, but really across the range, um, of the lack of effective action. So I think it's a double whammy of real fear about what, uh, you know, global warming is going to do in, in terms of our environment, but also tremendous frustration that people are not acting on the science and that mm. we do know that if we act on the science, we have tremendous um, possibility of at least limiting the real impacts, but that's not happening. Uh, it's not happening uh, in any way uh, close to the science and it's not happening evenly across the world. So I think that they are very aware of that um, and uh, it, they're very concerned because they have a greater stake than you and I, right? That, you know, they have their whole lives. And we know that, you know, life expectancy now, you know, is in the high 80s. So kids, kids particularly born today um, are very likely to live in very, to very old age. Uh, and so... You know, the young people now have have uh, their whole lives that they're actually going to experience uh, the impacts of this. Uh, and we know that the impacts are coming earlier than, than expected. We know we're actually in uh, the throes of the beginning of the impacts of, uh, of global warming. Uh, so they're very much the ones that are going to experience uh, the full impacts. And what we found is that even though they had high levels of anxiety uh, and, and uh, mental health impacts, that they weren't seeking traditional uh, medical um, assistance. And we speculated that that was because perhaps they didn't feel that that was going to be um, beneficial in that it's not particularly uh, geared towards dealing with uh, issues that, um, you know, of this scale and magnitude that are actually real. Concerningly, a lot of them are also making lifelong decisions quite early. Many of them are saying they're not going to have children. Or they do not see that they will have, um, you know, that they cannot consider that their, you know, that the, you know, financial decisions they're making now, or the decisions around career and study, uh, that uh, that we really make for the longer term, they can't 
see the sense of making these decisions. They can't, um, they find it very difficult to make, um, to take actions for their longer term good because they could not really perceive of a longer term that was in any way manageable. Uh, so it's a sense of powerlessness, a sense of um, uh, a stuckness is is how I define that. Just you know, what do we do? We are we are really facing uh, you know a future that no other generation has faced, and and there was real anger that uh, you know under, that those in power hadn't done what what they could have done when they could have done it. Do you think that climate anxiety is taken seriously, or is it? sort of dismissed as a as a snowflake concern that people just need to get over? There is a whole industry in dismissing this. One of the things that um, is really concerning is that we've seen stories come out in the last few days that there's over a billion-dollar fund being funded for climate denialism um, so that, you know, there, there are active climate denialists on social media that are actually tapping into that. So they're actually tapping into that anxiety and saying, no, it's all rubbish. They're, they're just, mm-hmm. you know, this alarmism is just contrived. Uh, they're making money out of it. They're just benefiting. So they're tapping into that uh, willingness to switch off uh, and it's really working. Um, and so absolutely it's dismissed. Um, and certainly anything that young people experience is often dismissed by older people in, in that kind of arrogant way that we boomers and I'm a boomer. Uh, that we boomers do. And also I think there's a tremendous guilt by in the boomer generation around the action that we didn't take because it was actually up to us. It was actually up to our generation, which where you, we, we saw a tremendous rise in, in the level of carbon in the atmosphere. We didn't stop that. We could have stopped that in the 80s. We certainly had the evidence uh, and we chose not to. Um, and so... You know, we're dealing with guilt on one end by the boomers and so it's much easier for us to just dismiss uh, the anxiety of young people as, you know, that's what young people do. They're just over, you know, they're overzealous, uh, they'll settle down and, uh, you know, we're all very excited once. We all marched for the Vietnam moratoriums and so on and then we settled into, um, you know, into adulthood. Uh, so absolutely it is far easier to dismiss young people or, or equal the anxiety that we're all suffering, even the pre-anxiety, which is new, than it is to actually deal with this issue. The UN's COP events represent a golden opportunity for youth to be heard. Unfortunately, Susie says governments have been slow to get on board. Is, I guess, climate anxiety unique as a, as a fear, particularly for young people? Or is this the kind of thing that does seem to come up again and again in different generations when they are facing a, a catastrophic existential threat? I think there are some similarities there in the sense that young people feel a little bit powerless in terms of the upper echelons of decision making. They don't have a voice in those big political decisions. I know that the engagement of diverse voices and youth is central to pushing governments towards ambitious commitments on climate and action, but we don't yet have a good mechanism Mm. for giving a seat, uh, giving youth a seat at that table. Um, And so youth at the COPs often talk about youth washing, which is youth being brought in in a performative way. And what they want is to actually be involved with the negotiations, not just on the sideline Mm. at side events. 
Mm. And so what can we do to try to increase that? I imagine government's kind of reluctant to take, unfortunately, to take young voices seriously. It's an interesting question. I actually think there's a lot of goodwill from governments in the UN to engage with youth, but we don't have yet very sophisticated or mature mechanisms for doing this. And so, for example, the Australian government has an advisory group, which is newly formed Mm -hmm. to uh, represent the youth voice in a political um, arena. And of course, the UN has a whole range of youth organisations and constituencies um, but at the moment, those groups are tending to provide advice on the sidelines rather than being actively involved. So how do we do that? That's something that I'm really passionate about and involved with at the UN. Young people aren't the only demographic shouldering this mental health burden. Here's Kelly O'Shaughnessy, CEO of the Australian Conservation Foundation. So I do see a lot with younger people um, probably anyone really under 30 lives will be very different. Um, because of climate change. The other big group that I see a lot as well is um, people who really understand climate change, that are alarmed about climate change. And there's this um, research in Australia called the Climate Compass, and it divides Australians up into how concerned they are about climate change. About 55% of Australians are concerned, but about 26% of them are very concerned. They're alarmed. And that cohort of people seem to be more fearful and more anxious. Uh, And a lot of them, of course, have been calling for a couple of decades for action on climate change. And what Mm. they said would happen if we didn't act is happening Mm. now. And I I feel, I mean, I I probably am one of those people in that category of of being active on climate change for a lot longer. I am alarmed about it, but there is absolutely no way I'm giving up. Um, And so I, I find ways to stay very motivated. But for many others, they are seeing what they feared two decades ago. And that means that um, they're questioning whether they're having an impact or not. Susie says we struggle to reckon with the scale of a planet-sized problem. I think when we engage with the issue fully, we can sometimes feel really overwhelmed. Like, what can I do in that space, right? Like, how can I help with you know, climate migrations that are going to happen due to famines in Africa. You know, it's it's just too big. And even when we bring things a bit closer to home, Alan says the Australian government solutions aren't reassuring many of us. One of the things about an analogy with war is that you see governments working on mm. things. They have a strategy. It may not always work, but they have planned, they mobilise the population to achieve a particular end. One of the common refrains in effect with young people is they don't see government action acting on this and if you consider the last government in Australia in particular there was a lot of hostility and frustration and anger around this so as well as talking about climate anxiety climate anger climate frustration and some psychologists talk about feeling like a climate hostage Hmm. the government is not doing enough to let us out of this situation and we're not seeing industry government NGOs locally, nationally, internationally, working together to look like there's a plan to sort this. After years advocating for positive change for the planet in business, government and the community sector, Callie's concerned that Australia still isn't facing up to the realities of climate change. We should take it more seriously, um, but we don't. And I, th- I think it's got to do with the type of transformations we need to make in order to solve climate change are possible 
but they are big. And um, they just require governments and businesses to think differently to the way they have thought in the past to solve this problem, which is global and is a risk amplifier. I always think climate change makes every other risk worse, um, every other disadvantage worse. Um, and so it requires billions and billions invested into renewables. It requires to change the things that we dig up out of the ground and export to the world. Um, it will mean um, that the work that some of us do will change, but the work will still be there. The work will still be good and well paid and you'll still be able to live in the regions you live in now, but maybe you'll be exporting different types of electrons to the world. Um, and so it really requires that different mindset and that's hard for a lot of people. So they'd just rather say, eh, we've got time. This is not as big a problem. And so it's that denial and denial factor and slowing things down and not acting fast enough is, a, I think, a form of climate denial. So if our governments and our business sectors aren't even facing up to the problem of climate change, to the extent they should, of course, they're no, not facing up to the problem of the health impacts that has. And in fact, I imagine it would actually be a very convenient um sidetrack for governments or big business to say, let's focus on the mental health aspects of climate change. Let's focus on the anxiety. But climate anxiety is different. It's not like being scared of spiders or small places. Mm. Climate anxiety can only be fixed by fixing the climate problem. Exactly. And as I just say, it's a completely rational response to the types of threats that we know are there and and it's possibly even more frustrating because we do know that those solutions are there right in front of us. Um, and we're increasingly learning that those solutions like renewable energy are actually much better for us. There's better jobs, uh, cheaper electricity, healthier planet, um, have less impact on nature. And so it's even more frustrating there. But there is no pill you can take for to relieve climate anxiety but I do, I do think there's something, as I mentioned earlier, there is something individually that we can do. In the end, um, the power of the people is greater than the people in power. What do we want? When do we want it? We need to hold our government to account. Worse, many of us have internalised a belief that it's on us as individuals to save the earth. Here's Rhonda again. Uh, there's another concerning trend, which is around where corporations that are actually causing and and contributing most uh, to the carbon uh, impacts that we're seeing uh, are now driving people to believe it's an individual fault issue. Mm-hmm. And if only we all had EVs and if only we all didn't eat meat, uh, you know, that it's actually up to us and we are actually the problem. So... Um, you know, this there is a tremendous worrying uh, worry that people are being um, really kind of pressured uh, to, um, you know, to be very, very um, disciplined and restrained and and completely change their lifestyle because this would, you know, this is so um, such a, a big issue. But we have to do something. As Callie points out, climate change isn't an impending threat. We're already grappling with its effects. And um, people are very worried. They're quite anxious, they're fearful, they're angry uh, about climate change. And 
it's because they are seeing the damage that climate change causes right now through terrible floods, fires, droughts uh, in Australia and around the world. And so this is happening now, not in the future, but what we know is it will get worse in the future if we don't act. So that fear is something that I see a lot in people. Um, they talk to myself and people at the Australian Conservation a lot about how afraid they are for their future and how they're trying to actively manage that so that they don't let their fear sort of overwhelm their lives. Here's Dr Rhonda Garrard. If we don't do anything about climate anxiety, let's pretend it just continues unabated, what happens? We will tr- we'll see a tremendous uh, um, level of anxiety at a population level that we haven't seen before. And I think this will um, lead to actions that um, are very disruptive uh, within our society. Um, I mean, climate impacts are disruptive in and of themselves. There was just a report released today uh, which showed that the cost of the impacts um, recently are going, you know, into the economy are in the billions of dollars and going forward in the next five years are in the multi-billion dollars. So climate is disruptive anyway, but I think what you're going to see is the social contract uh, the contract that we all um, sign up to in one way or the other that 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 is about a collaboration that is about working together that is an, is an implicit agreement uh, that we are all in it together I think you'll start to see that fraying in even more you will start to see splintering you will start to see much more protesting much more angry you'll see you know groups like climate um, like the um, extinction rebellion, uh, become more, more prominent and their numbers swell. Their numbers are swelling anyway. Um, you'll see them taking disruptive action. Uh, you will see a much more conflict um, because we're going to see conflict anyway. So when you combine El Nino and boiling oceans, you are likely to see a an El Nino effect on steroids starting this summer that has enormous impact on water security. So we will see conflict over water security. We will see climate refugees. These will all start to happen. So we will have this escalating environment of climate uh, and you will start to see within our society that that anxiety will, will um, start to manifest as disruption um, and, and will have direct and uh, real impacts on um, our, our, the cohesion within our society that will start to splinter more and more because we are not we are not acknowledging and we are not acting on the anxiety of young people now, even though they're begging us. The challenges of climate change transcend borders, and the scale means it's nearly impossible to fully grasp the extent of the potential harm. With our entire world's future in doubt it's little wonder climate anxiety is prevalent and growing. Thank you to all our guests on today's episode. Amanda McKenzie, Callie O'Shaughnessy, Dr Rhonda Garrard, Associate Professor Susie Ho and Professor Alan Reid. You can learn more about their work by visiting our show notes. Next week on What Happens Next, our experts share valuable strategies for coping with climate anxiety and for inspiring collective action to secure a future worth inheriting. Hey, listeners, we love your five-star ratings and reviews. Keep them coming. Tell us what you really think about a topic or just let us know the last episode you listened to. Your feedback makes a difference. 
Why just listen to the podcast? Visit Monash University's YouTube channel to see a video version of what happens next. You can also watch this episode on Monash Lens. Visit lens.monash.edu. Check the link to listen now. Thank you for joining What Happens Next.